All right, if you will, turn with me back to Revelation chapter 3. And this morning we are going to begin the last letter um, to the seven churches, this one being Laodicea. Let's ask the Lord to lead us as we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for providing everything we need. Lord, we pray this morning that you will feed your sheep, that you will encourage your people. I pray, Lord, this morning for those that aren't with us that are that are home taking care of sick ones or maybe sick themselves. We just ask that you would, um, even where they, they sit this morning, that you will edify and encourage them and feed them with your word, that you might be honored and glorified in their lives. Help us this morning, Father. I pray that you would be honored and glorified and empower our ears and my mouth this morning to please you with what we talk about this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right. We are arriving at the last church on our mail route as we look at the letters to the seven churches. And we will quickly notice that Laodicea is not one of the seven churches viewed with a positive report. Sadly, there is very little by way of good news for the church of Laodicea, other than the fact that Christ is gracious and loving enough to tell them that he will discipline them. That's good news for them, and it's good news for us. It's not always welcome. Um, We know that in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the chastening of our fathers and how grievous that was. And I, I remember, you guys know, I didn't need to be chastened very often as a young lad. So those were infrequent moments. But I do remember vividly um, those times of correction and how impactful they were. And I think each of us, as we look back on our lives, can think about how God has chastened and disciplined us and how incredibly impactful that has been. Here is a church that um, has lost its way. And we'll, we'll talk about, there's, there's three points that we want to look at, and it's a very similar um, outline to what we've been looking at with all of the letters We're only going to get to point one this morning, so I'm not even going to pretend to try to get to it all. So um, don't get excited that we read the whole chapter or the whole passage. We're not going to get that far. Um, By way of context, just to give some background on Laodicea, Laodicea is a wealthy town, and it's wealthy because of its industry and banking. And, And you'll notice it as Jesus rebukes them. He uses some interesting terms. He says, buy of me gold tried in the fire and garments, the white garment of the righteousness of Christ. He's using the things that they are keenly aware of that they have prospered and made their money off of. And he turns it around on them. But, but by context, Laodicea, it had industry in banking, textiles, linen and wool, and pharmaceuticals, inter- interestingly enough. They were, um, 
they had a medical school there um, and it's conjectured that it was um, ophthalmology based. Hence the comment on ISAF that we see later in the passage. Um, Laodicea was a, a town or a city, if you will, that produced um, eye medicine. And these are all pictures of irony that cut right to the heart. And we hear a rightfully sharp, sharp rebuke from Jesus to this church. This was also a city, by the way, that was known for its independent spirit. And the old analogy of pulling oneself up by the bootstraps, we've heard that before, right? Uh, especially in our culture. The uh, mentality is alive and well here for us. But the reason this was the case, you remember last last uh well this was probably three or four weeks ago we talked about the city of philadelphia they were hit by an earthquake remember that remember what happened caesar came in and helped them rebuild and he he uh did a a ceasefire on taxes for about five years so that the city could rebuild and they ended up naming the city caesar's new city um well that was in AD 17, and just 43 years after that, we find Laodicea is leveled by an earthquake. But their response is a little bit different than Philadelphia. Their response is, we've got it. We don't need your charity. We'll rebuild it ourselves. And they did. And as I was, I was digging into the context for this and just preparing for this, I, I could not help but Think about what happened last week with, uh, well, a little over a week ago now with, with Hurricane Ian. And if you were watching any of the, the news, any of the media, or even some sporting events, um, I, I remember seeing some athletes with T-shirts on um, that read Florida Strong. Anybody see any of those? Um in response to Ian's assault on the West coast of Florida. And, you know, it, while our do it yourself culture is busy patting itself on the back regarding its resilience, its intestinal fortitude and all the rest. What, what didn't get talked about a whole lot is there were over a hundred people who died, who were brought before the throne of God, the judgment seat and were ushered into eternity and we don't know the state of their spiritual condition, where they stood with the Lord. But what do you suppose those individuals would, would testify to? I think they'd be talking about how strong and resilient Florida is. Oh, there's far greater things. Far greater things to be concerned with. In our, in our culture, very much like Laodicea, we admire strength. We admire resiliency. We admire tenacity. We admire the whole can-do self-help approach. But spiritually speaking, this is deadlier than a Category 4 hurricane for the church. It is counterintuitive to what God would have the church be. And here is a church that is caught up in the culture around it. And it is so heavily influenced by the culture that it is in 
And we'll see why and how that, that plays out as we look at that this morning. But these, these wealthy Laodiceans seem to have everything they could need. But interestingly, it lacked a fundamental and very important critical resource, water. How many of you have had a drink of water this morning in some form or fashion? That can be in coffee, right? That counts. That's brown water, yes. Um, there are different forms and formats. Um, Bojangle sweet tea, I don't know if that counts. But, but water, we recognize that if we go without water, bad things are going to happen, isn't, isn't it? Well, interestingly, and, and Jesse talked about um, the rock in the wilderness this morning. Interestingly, Laodicea, did not have, as wealthy as they were a city, they did not have their own water source. So unlike the mountain towns that were not too far from them that had cold water streams or nearby, um, there's a city called Hierapolis that had access to medicinally healing hot springs, right? We've got some cities close to them that they get their water from that have cold water streams mountain streams, and then we have hot springs, and here is Laodicea, smack dab in the middle with nothing. Yes, yes, a resort town. And they had no water supply of their own. So interestingly enough, I did some research on aqueducts, pretty amazing stuff. And you think about um, where taxes go for and, and how all that worked, and Rome built some amazing technologically advanced aqueduct systems. But these things were not perfect. And I, I showed a couple of pictures here. There's a couple of examples of, of some of their underground pipe. Now, they did have pipe. Um, but the way this worked is the aqueduct would run across the top and convey the water to, uh, to the city. But what do you think the water looked like by, a time, by the time it got to Laodicea? Is it like drinking right out of the source? No, no, there's going to be a problem with that water that's conducted for, it's estimated between five and 10 miles. By the time that it gets to Laodicea, what's it look like? Mm. Yes, maybe a little chocolate milk. Hence, God's reference to hot, cold, lukewarm. And so he's using some, some very real analogies that they were very well acquainted with to teach him spiritual truth. Water had to be piped in through the aqueducts from several miles away. And, and by the time that it got there, it was lukewarm and full of sediment. Um, cold water is good for drinking, isn't it? Maddie, what is the first thing mom will tell you when she asks you to grab her a drink of water? Extra ice, right? Why? Because nobody goes to the tap to get a glass of lukewarm water, do they? Well, some people maybe. But if you do, you're, you're an oddball. The context here for the church in Laodicea, though, is Jesus uses these very real temporal conditions to illustrate, illustrate greater truth for them. And the... The challenge for them is that if they had ears to hear, that they were to hear the word of God. And we have um, 
point number one, an introduction here from the faithful and true witness. And we'll only get as far as the introduction. We'll talk, Lord willing, next week about the rebuke that he has uh, for the church of Laodicea. But I want you to see something important. As this is our last letter, we'll kind of take a quick retrospective look back. The angel, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I hope you have have noticed this. Um, As I have studied this, I have definitely picked up on this. There's a repeated pattern here with every letter. And and there's a mix here. There are, are letters of encouragement to some of the churches where where they there's nothing in by way of accusation or fault to find with them and there are letters that that just like this one that'll just knock the socks off i can only imagine if if being the elder in the church that read that letter from john penned by his hand from the island of patmos and read it in the hearing of the church family i can't can't imagine that but I want you to see this, that the introduction statement from Christ always ties specifically to the the need of that church in that context. Um, When we studied chapter one and it went down and listed the characteristics of Christ, those were carried into the seven letters and those were specifically applied to very distinct needs. For example, last week we looked at the letter to the church of Philadelphia. And and how did Jesus introduce himself in Revelation chapter three, verse seven? He is the one who holds the key of David. And we spent a lot of time looking at what the key of David was, but the key of David was a direct anecdote or the, the antidote, if you will, to the synagogue of Satan who claimed what? That they had um, essentially the, the, the control of heavenly access. And Jesus called them what? The synagogue of Satan. How did they believe that they were going to secure eternal salvation? Yes, by keeping the law. Jesus said, no, I have the key of access. So with his introduction of who he is, it directly relates or correlates to the the specific need of the church that he's writing to at the time. You go back to chapter three, verse one, to Sardis the one who has the seven spirits. Seven spirits is a picture symbolically of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the spirit that lacks nothing. What does this church need? Well, this church had an issue of spiritual deadness. What did they need? They need to be revived. They needed to be reformed, very much so like the city of Laodicea that we'll talk about. But they had a need for renewal for their spiritual lethargy. And who is the the answer to that? Who is the antidote to their spiritual lethargy? Christ. Um, Go back to chapter 2, verse 18, the letter to Thyatira. We find Jesus being introduced as the one with eyes of fire who searches the mind and heart. And what does Jesus see in the church of Thyatira? He says, I know your enemy. Well, who was the enemy? She was referred to as Jezebel. Not the literal person, but the um, the false teaching that was being brought against that church as an adversary. And what does Jesus tell the church in Thyatira? I see 
I see what she is doing, and I will judge it. And he gives space for repentance, but he, he promises to come to their defense, very much like we read in 2 Samuel 22 this morning. You go back a little further to chapter 2, verse 12, the, the letter to the church in Pergamum. Jesus introduces himself as the one with a sharp two-edged sword. And what does he promise to do with the two-edged sword? He's going to go to war against that false teacher, Balaam, and defend his church. Go back to, to uh, Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 8. The words of the first and the last, he died and came back to life. That is the direct antidote for the church that he said was, was going to be tried even unto death. And what did Jesus tell the church in Smyrna? You're going to be tried. You're going to be tested. And guess what? I will protect you from what the real harm is, which is the second death. Why is that the antidote? Because Jesus says, I am, I am the first and the last and the one who died and came back to life. Is there any more assurance that the believer needs than to know he is protected and upheld by the one who was resurrected? If I'm facing death, I want you to remind me of one thing. Christ is the resurrection. Don't fear death. We don't need to fear it. So, Going back even a little bit further to Ephesus, the one who holds the stars in his hands. We've talked about that, who walks among the lampstands, caring for and sustaining them. Jesus is, is reminding them of what they need to be in, in terms of the fact that they left their first love. They're to love like he, like he did or does. So what is the overwhelming theme and takeaway um, that we see with this repeated pattern. If you get nothing else, and we've, we've I think, 12, 12 messages so far on the letters to the seven churches. If we don't see anything else, see this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs the Lord Jesus Christ desperately. And that's us. In John chapter 15 and verse 4, it says, Jesus talking to his disciples says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do all kinds of things. Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, and the word abide means to remain, to stay, to lodge with. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Expecting us to live the Christian life apart from the sustaining grace of our Savior is just as silly. And Jesus uses a very simple farming analogy here. Everybody um, knew how vines were grown in their context, didn't they? And lots of people had vineyards. It is common farming sense to know that if you sever a branch off of the vine, what is going to happen? 
it's going to die. The vine will not, the, the branch will not sustain itself. And Jesus uses a very simple analogy to illustrate this. In our context, I would say this, it's just as silly to unplug your toaster and then lower the level, the, the, the lever handle on the toaster and expect to get a crispy ego. It's not going to happen. You can stand there all day and wait for that ego to pop. But if it's unplugged, what's going to happen? You're going to feel pretty silly. That's, that's the, the, the picture here. It could be a bagel. It, could be, <laughs> it, it would be an everything bagel. What is, what is Jesus communicating here? The source of life, the source of sustenance for the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we sever ourselves from the vine, we can't expect to bear fruit. And that's exactly the case with this church. Um, they, are, they are living in their own strength, their own power. They are, they are completely um, inundated by the culture around them. And it's, it's a warning for us. It is an absolute warning for us. First John chapter two on the, the continuing theme of abiding appropriately. Verse 15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, what? Abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. They, that is the Antichristoi, um, and Antichrist, by the way, means literally opponent to the Messiah. Um, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have what? Continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. The church of Jesus Christ is being assayed. It is being valued. It is being tested. It is being weighed. In 1 Peter 3, or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Listen to what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power, listen to this, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. And the word in the Greek conveys the, the thought um, uncovered or brought to light. So what is Jesus saying here? Or what is Peter saying here about our inheritance? He said, you have been bought or born again to a lively hope, a living hope. You have an, an imperishable inheritance. It's undefiled, unfading, and it's kept in heaven, reserved for you, waiting to be revealed waiting to be unmasked, if you will. Um, and he says, in the last time, that is, in verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested 
genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at, notice what he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling, the disclosure, the uncovering. What is Peter saying? Jesus is preparing the church for her unveiling. Okay, let's, let's think through this for a second. Jesus is now preparing his church to be unveiled to reveal her glory. And when is he going to do that? When he reveals himself at the last day. It's the great disclosure of Christ at his return. He intends, think about this for a minute. He intends to show the onlooking world, the scoffers, the mockers. Look at my beautiful bride. I have created her. I have called her out of you. She was just like you. And I have redeemed her out of you with my blood. I have taken her filthy rags. I have forgiven her. I have purified her, given her a new name and a new identity. And she is now ready to be presented. So let me ask you a question. How does Jesus prepare his bride to be presented? How does he do that? Well, Peter tells us that salvation is being made ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, in this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is it that prepares us for that revelation? The testing, trial by fire. And this testing, you know, I, I use the term essayed, means to estimate the value of, to determine the value of something. Who needs to know? Does, does the Lord Jesus Christ know you sitting here today in these seats or listening online? Does the Lord Jesus know if you are his sheep or not? You think he knows that? My sheep hear my voice. I know them. I give unto them. So what is he testing? What is that test for? And I would say us and one other party, the onlooking world, because you know what Jesus is going to do with his church? He is going to glorify himself in it. He is going to make a public display. Um, who is it? Uh, Mark, I can't think of his name, who great definition for the glory of God talks about God going public with his character. Um, Piper, John Piper, talks about God glorifying himself as him making public everything that he is and revealing who he is. So when, when, when God is testing his church, look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. He's talking to Smyrna. He says, he says I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. By the way, he knows who the professors and the possessors are. He said, I know who the synagogue of Satan is, but he says, you're going to be tested. You're going to be tried. And he says, don't fear what you are about to suffer. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Well, Lord, if you know that the devil is going to throw some of us into prison, wouldn't you stop it? And he says, he's going to throw some of you into prison so that what? You will be tested, tried, scrutinized. For 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I want you to see this. God is measuring his church. He is saying his church so that he can display his church. He's separating the sheep from the goats, not because he needs to know what we're made of, but so that he may demonstrate to us in the enemy that we are real. How do we know we're real? I ask you this morning, how do you know you're genuine? Remember what, what God said to Satan concerning Job? Think about those words. Have you considered my servant Job? God tests Job. Does God not know what Job is made of? Does he not know? But who gets educated in that, in that process? Does God find out things about Job that, that he didn't know about Job previously? No. But who gets educated? Well, Job. Guess who else? Job's buddies. Friends like that. Who needs enemies, right? Who else? Job's wife. Not Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? What does Satan say about Job? Lord, he only serves you because you have been good to him. Ain't wrong. 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 He's proving his church and he will prove his church and show the enemies of the church that, that it is in fact real. And God will be glorified in his church because he's taking empty vessels like you and I and filling us with his glory. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. This is a, an interesting verse, and I heard a pastor talk about this, and it, it hit me right between the eyes regarding the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In the case of the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ. Satan is blinding the eyes of the unbelieving so that they will not see the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. Why would we not proclaim ourselves? Because he's about to tell us what we are. Read on. He says, we don't proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And look at verse seven. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. I think the KGV says earthen vessels. So 
we have this treasure. Who are the jars of clay? We are. What is a jar of clay? Well, a jar in the Greek is a container. It's a carrying container. We, um, some of us are excellent at canning. Well, if you take a mason jar and you put green beans in it and you put it on a shelf, guess what you can do? You don't even have to label it, do you? Because you can see those are green beans and they'll be good later on. What's the problem with a jar of clay? Hard to tell, isn't it? In fact, you can, if you look in the Greek, it, it, it even intimates the word mud. What is, what, is, what is he saying here? You are jars of mud in which is contained the glory of God. Why does God fill jars of, of mud with his glory? <laughs> you will not mistake the picture for the frame. Absolutely. The show is glory. Who gets glory with what is in those jars of mud? He does. But we need to understand something. And Paul continues here. He says, we have this treasure, the light, which is the light of God's glory in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You think we're something really special? Remember, you're a jar of mud. What makes you special is not the fact that you are a jar. It's what's inside of you. Well, where did you get that? There are some that would say, well, what's inside of you is, oh, they have a good heart. No, what, is, what does Paul say? In me dwells what? There's one thing good in us as a believer. What is that? The indwelling spirit of God, his glory. He says, we're afflicted in every way, verse 8, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Christ. And the life of Jesus may also be, listen, manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Did you hear that? For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. We need to understand something. How does God reveal himself in a jar of clay? Breaks it. How do you see what's inside of a jar of clay? He breaks it. Now, what may seem to the world is our undoing is only the revealing of God's glory in our lives as he breaks us and remakes us. We need to understand this. This is incredibly important for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The path of glorifying God. How, how often have you prayed, Lord, I want to glorify you? Do we know what we're saying? Do we have any idea what we're saying? The path to glorifying God is most likely through pain and affliction. Mark that down. The path to glorifying God is through pain and affliction. Jars of clay must be broken to reveal the contents. That is how he does it. He in his infinite wisdom has chosen to do that. And you know what he promised? I will be with you as I break you. 
and I will not allow you to be hurt by the second death. The church in America is not hearing this. They're being told God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, prosperous. Guess what? All of those things belong to the church of Laodicea and how good were they because of all of that. If we understand this concept, this principle, it will change our lives. We're no longer victims of bad things happening. When we understand this principle, this truth, we can see the unfolding story of what God is doing in our lives. That by the sovereign hand of God, all things sent my way, even via very ugly mediums like Satan and adversaries in this world who hate us. I can look at them as what they are, messages from God to conform me to his image, to remake me so that I can demonstrate his glory in my life. And that's hard to see. These times of trying and testing are for my good and his glory. And it's counterintuitive, isn't it? We want so much to protect our children, don't we? keep them from all harm. And the reality of it is God loves us so much that he is willing to break us so that he can demonstrate his glory in us. And it is for our good. While the, the, the American church is looking for their ticket out of here, their one way rapture ticket, missing the point. And they're going to be so surprised when trial and tribulation comes their way. They're going to feel betrayed. They're going to feel abandoned because they've been sold a lie. Paul tells Timothy, young Timothy, as he's stepping into the pulpit, Timothy, everything's going to be great. The life of a pastor is amazing. You just wait. No, no. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Verse 10, Paul tells Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions. Wait a minute, Paul. You're going to scare Timothy away. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Listen to this. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me talked about that this morning. The Lord did not keep David from going through the valley. What did he do? He brought him through on the other side. Indeed, this is Paul again talking to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life will have have it easy. No, all who desire to live a godly life, what? Yes. Is Paul telling the truth here? How do we prepare our church? How do we prepare ourselves? How do we prepare our families? By reminding them what scripture says, all they that will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do we still tell our kids to live godly lives or strive to do that, knowing that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Our tribulation, trials, and testings are God's gracious reminder that the church, that is you and I, need desperately the sustaining hand of the shepherd. 
That's what this, this reoccurring theme to all these letters to the churches are. You need me. And if you're going to embark on the Christian life apart from Christ, you're going to wither on the vine. Can't do it. I uh, subtitled our message this morning, Bootstrap Christianity. You know, the analogy of that is we always hear, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, like grab the bull by the horns and charge on. But have you ever tried to pick yourself up by your bootstraps? Have you done that? How do you do do that? You're standing in your boots and you grab your two belt loops or your the loops on your boots and you pick yourself up. Try it. Go home and try it. You don't don't do it here. We'll look like a bunch of falling out charismatics if you try it. Why? It's impossible. There is no such thing as bootstrap Christianity. And, And the church in Laodicea was finding this out. It's in this context and the backdrop of, of this that the elder in Laodicea reads this biting letter to the church family in Laodicea. And the introduction is the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's um, creation. So the question, as we look at this first verse this morning, is what does scripture mean when it says that he is the Amen. And how does that apply to Laodicea? Now, um, some pronounce amen, amen. Tomato, tomato. (laughs) By the way, it does not diminish your properly pronounced amen. Say amen. (laughs) No. I pick on you, brother. We tend to think of this word as an expression of agreement in certain circles. In some churches, they won't even say it because it's distracting or embarrassing, maybe. Um, and it's, it's interesting how different churches look at it. But it's, it's far more than just an expression of concurrence or agreement. Um, and by the way, it's okay to say amen during the service. It's okay. Let's me know you're awake. Enduring. Yeah. <laughs> Enduring. After spawn two. Um, thank you, brother. It is, it's far more than that, though. In the Old Testament, the word was used by both individuals and the community to confirm the acceptance of a charge that God gave them. For example, 1 Kings chapter 32, or chapter 1, verse 32. We're going to be there in a couple of weeks. King David calls Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Beniah the son of Jehoiada. So they come before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then bow or blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. This is David passing the baton. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen, or Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. 
And the Lord has been with, as the Lord has been with my Lord, the King, even so may he be with Solomon, make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. Was anointing Solomon important? Is that an important part of God's promise? Yes. So we have um, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, giving the hearty amen. May it be so. It's also to confirm um, the word amen is to confirm the personal application of a divine threat or curse. And in Deuteronomy 27, 15, 11 or 12 times Israel is charged with a command and their response is to be what? Thank you. Not, um, yes, it's amen. Deuteronomy 27, 15, cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of the craftsman and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, amen. Why? Why did God say the people were to say amen? Because it was a witness against themselves. So R.C. Sproul um, helps define this a little bit. I just want to read you a paragraph of an article that he wrote. What does the word amen mean? He says this, the term amen was used in the corporate worship of ancient Israel in two distinct ways. It served first as a response to praise given to God and second as a response to prayer. Those same usages of the term are still in vogue among Christians. The term itself is rooted in the Semitic word that means truth. And the utterance of amen is an acknowledgement that the word that has been heard, whether a word of praise, a word of prayer, or a sermonic ex exhortation is valid and is sure and binding. Think about that. That, that goes back to the curse we read in Deuteronomy 27, verse 15. It's binding. Even in antiquity, the word amen was used in order to express a pledge to fulfill the terms of the vow. So this little word is one that is centered on the idea of the truth of God. We are told in the scriptures that the truth of God are a yea or yes and amen. Second Corinthians 1.20, which means simply that the word of God is valid, is certain, and binding. Therefore, the expression amen is not simply an acknowledgement of personal agreement with what has been stated it is, listen to this, an expression of willingness to submit to the implications of that word, to indeed be bound by it, as if the word of God would put ropes around us, not to strangle or retard us, but the, to hold us firmly in place. Words have meanings, don't they? So why does Jesus open with that? Well, Christ is the very expression of truth. And we see, uh, if you're reading through the Gospels and you see the King James will say, verily, verily, I say unto you, and we change it to modern day English and we say, truly, truly. You know what Jesus is saying? Amen and amen. Well, what, what is he doing there? In the Hebrew language, if, if a word was repeated, what did that, what did that do? Yes. For example, in Isaiah, when we see holy, 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 what is he conveying? Listen up. God's holy. 
When Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you, he is giving the amen before he ever says the word. And what is he doing? He is, he is committing to the fact that everything coming out of his mouth is true. It's sure. It's faithful. It's honest. And it's to be binding. So Christ is the very expression of truth. He is the binding fulfillment of all of God's promises. He has obligated the church. Listen, he has obligated the church in Smyrna and you and I as well to be faithful and true witnesses. Was Smyrna doing that? Were they being faithful and true witnesses? No. They were failing in this obligation. And he introduces himself as the amen, the faithful, the true witness. He is trustworthy. He is correct. He is truthful. And he is the witness. And, and John continues with the introduction by saying he is the beginning of God's creation. Now, at first blush, if you read that, you might be tempted to think that Jesus was the first being created. Is that theologically accurate? Is that important? Yes, yeah, thank you. Amen, Mark. Amen. Amen, Mark. That's right. What does this mean? Does this, does this undermine the eternality of the nature of God and Christ as the eternal son? Is that what John is saying here? No. The, the word beginning here means that which is first, either in time or in rank. Uh, in other words, um, we find that Jesus is the prototype or the archetype, if you will, the first. When he talks about being the first, firstborn from the dead, um, Jesus is preeminent for the church in his resurrection. Is that important for us? I've used the analogy before when, when two brothers are, are arguing over whether they're, or not they're going to do something very risky. What do they do? I'm sure you guys in the back row know what I'm talking about. Do we jump? Do we jump out of this tree or do we climb down? Well, you go first. No, you go first. Why? Because we know that if that one brother goes first and he survives without breaking his leg and going to the hospital with mom and dad, then chances are I'm good. What he's talking about here is that Jesus has gone before us in the resurrection. So what should that do for us? Do I fear death? If Jesus' resurrection was sure, and he was seen by witnesses, what does that tell me about the truth of the resurrection? I can, I can count on it. It's amen. So I don't need to be worried and afraid of death. So J.K. Beale, who is a phenomenal commentator on this, sums up this, this principle very well. He says this, Verse 14 must be related to the rest of the letter in some way since the titles introducing all the previous letters are related to and developed in the letters. We just talked about that. Jesus introduces himself to the Laodicean church as the amen, the faithful and true witness, because he wants them to stop compromising and emulate him so that they will also be zealous, faithful, and true witnesses. If they do not heed his warning to repent, they will faith, face him as the faithful and true judge. In Revelation chapter 19, we find 
Jesus riding upon a white horse. And what do they refer to him? The faithful and true judge riding upon a white horse who is ready to make war and judge in righteousness. Who will vomit them out? Now, we have dressed down just a little bit and we've said um, spit. Now, I've taught the kids not to spit. It's not good. Vomiting is worse. And it's, it's a not so, it's a very colorful word. And it expresses so much. And immediately it conjures up bouts with the flu that you would rather forget. Yes, the faithful judge will vomit them out if they do not repent. If they, if they do become faithful witnesses, they will also show themselves to be part of, listen to this, the new creation, which has been inaugurated in Jesus, just as his faithful testimony led him to being firstborn from the dead. That's chapter one, verse five. And thus launching this new creation, so their loyal testimony will demonstrate that they are part of this new creation by virtue of their identification with him. The theme of this letter then is that the readers need to be renewed as new creatures in their relationship with Christ by testifying to this relationship in an uncompromising matter or manner. The church was not being faithful to Christ. They were not being faithful in their witness and their testimony. And Jesus is. And this is what he expects of them. The creative power of the resurrected Jesus can raise them from their spiritual stupor, strengthen them in the faith so that they will repent and confirm them in their enduring fellowship with him. The church needs an injection of Christ's resurrection power. So Paul summarizes it this way in Colossians 1, 15, verse 17. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, first, chief. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The picture here of the firstborn is Paul is figuratively referring to Christ as the firstborn, the the prototokos, of all creation. That's not to say that Jesus was the first thing created, but he is the chief cause of creation. All these debates with atheists, you say nobody was there to witness creation. Oh, yes, there was. Scripture tells us if Jesus is the amen and he was there for creation, can we trust Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth? Yes. Amen. We don't have to worry about primordial goo because we had the amen there to witness it because he is God. All that to say this, Christ is a source of spiritual renewal that they so desperately need. And I would encourage you to hear this. It is just as true for us. We must abide in him. We must be connected or plugged in, if you will. Toaster doesn't work if it's unplugged. Just because we have been made a new creation in Christ does not mean that we don't need renewal. Think about that. Now, the question comes up, and it's a good one. I hope you're asking this. What does this mean to me? 
How does this apply to me? This is a church far, far away, long, long time ago. What does this have to do with me? Well, if you're born again, you're alive. But guess what? You need to be renewed. When David penned the words of Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart and renew in me, what? A right spirit. Was he regenerate when he wrote that? Absolutely. We need to be renewed. What does that look like? I want to give you some practical encouragement on what that looks like this morning. And I'm, I promise I'm almost done. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse 15, for it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our out, outward self is wasting away. What does that mean? Uh, you're dying. The, the idea of wasting away means your, your body is corrupting. Your body is going downhill. I hate to tell you this, guys. It's all going down the tubes, physically speaking. Now, the good news is you're getting a new one later. But for now, just be aware. Lower your expectations. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is what? Being renewed. Day by day. What does that mean? How often are we being renewed? Day by day. Yes. The process of renewal for the believer while their body, our body is wasting away is what? Every day. How is that happening? How does that happen? Our daily bread. Yes, the Holy Spirit within us is renewing us, isn't he? Yes. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not on the things that are seen, but, uh, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So what does this mean? Ephesians chapter 4. I want to talk to you real briefly about what it is to be renewed. What does that look like? That is a practical admonition and, by the way, a command. Romans 12, 2, what does it say? Be not conformed to this world, but what? Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's something that we are involved in there. There is a process which we are engaged in, and I am not saying that we are the basis of our sanctification, but, but hear me out for a minute. Ephesians 4, verse 22, Paul says, put off your old self. Who's he talking to? The Ephesian church. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed. And I love the word in the Greek. It means to be reformed. You know that in scripture, it is a command to be reformed. May all our Arminian friends hear that. That's not what it means, but it, it, it's still that word. Thank you. In this, he says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God 
in true righteousness. So what is he talking about with the command to put off and put on? It's to, to very simply illustrate this. In the Leahy houses, we have 10 children. We do, as you might imagine, a lot of laundry. Okay? And we go through a lot of clothes. And laundry looks like for us, as we do laundry, it ends up on our bed, in our bedroom, in a massive pile. So, like, if I'm laying down and I want to watch the news or something, I can't see. You can't see the TV because it's a massive pile of clothes. And so it's a major family sharing opportunity and undertaking where most of the children partake of folding and learn how to do that. But the the picture here that Paul is talking about is putting off the old dirty rags, identifying them for what they are and changing them. And, and the picture is something that we can all understand. Get changed. Where are your good clothes? I don't know how many times we've had that conversation. What, what did you do with your good pants? Where are your good clothes? And Paul reminds us in Romans 12, don't be conformed or fashioned alike, molded in the same pattern to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of, of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So how do we how does this work? Well, first of all, I, I want you to understand you can't renew what is not alive. You cannot renew what is not alive. You've heard me say it many times. We we talked about it this morning in Bible study. You must be born again. You can't renew a dead person. Can't. You can, put, you can put nice clothes on a corpse, but guess what? It's still a corpse. You can't renew a dead person. So when we're talking about renewal here, this is talking about the believer who is born again, who has the spirit of God residing in them. The renewal, the renovation, the transformation, the reformation of the mind is not an optional, optional add-on for the Christian. It is a command. And it's a very reasonable question. If, if God has commanded me to be renewed in my mind, what, how do I obey that? Are you interested in knowing how to obey that command? We should be. Well, first of all, we are to put off our old conformed thoughts. Question everything. Like clothes, old thoughts become familiar, comfortable just because I've seen it this way for years. Christians should always be reforming. What does that mean? I am examining everything, my whole life, in light of God's word. And when I do that, what's going to happen? There's going to be changes, because my mind is going to change about things. When you go home after church, you're going to put on old sweats or something comfortable, because that's what you feel good in. You don't, we don't like to wear church clothes all the time, right? Our thoughts are the same way. The things that we have been comfortable with and familiar with, bulwarks of, of um, rebellion against God. But just because we're familiar with them doesn't mean they shouldn't go. 2 Corinthians 10 Three through six, listen to this. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war 
according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Where are the strongholds, guys? Right here. What is a stronghold up here? It's something that sticks there that I have not been able to get past. My mind has not changed about this. How do I change my mind? How do I be renewed in my mind? How do I bring the weapons of God to bear in that war? That's the question we need to ask. Listen to what he says. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Wait a minute. Christians have thoughts and strongholds in their minds that are against the knowledge of God? Yes, we do. And what does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10? Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Where is the battlefield in the Christian life? It's in our own hearts and minds. And what is the enemy? What is the enemy? Well, go look in the mirror. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is work, isn't it? Take every thought captive. So this is a serious question. I want you to think about this. What does the world do to catechize you? What does the world do to catechize you? Does it catechize you? Is it catechizing you? Would Paul tell us to, to not be conformed to the world if the world wasn't catechizing us? What are the tools that it uses? Good one, Mark. Amen. You need to answer this. You, you personally, every single one of us need to answer this question. How is the world shaping me to fit their pattern? Because it is. How's it doing it? There's an all-out blitz for our minds. Do you, do you realize that? I, I did just a, a little bit of research. Data. Data, data, data. How much data is in the world? Think about something for a second. This is, this is just, this will change by this afternoon if I looked it up again. Digital information has been so entrenched in all aspects of our, of our lives and society that the, the exponential growth in information is overwhelming. Have you ever felt that way? I, I like to finish work at the end of the day with a clean uh, inbox. Why? Mark, you're giving me the amen, I can tell. Because you, you don't, it, it, it hurts you, doesn't it? You guys know what I'm talking about? I know, I'm crazy. You don't know. You're, you're just shutting it off and walking away. Good. Each day on planet Earth, listen to this, we generate 500 million tweets. That's a lot of tweets to follow. I hope you're not following 500 million tweets. 294 billion emails. You get most of them? <laughs> Four, listen to this, 4 million gigabytes of Facebook data. 65 billion WhatsApp messages and 720,000 hours of new content added daily on YouTube. You ever felt overwhelmed 
by information. It's supposed to be that way. It's a blitz on our minds. How much of that do we expose our minds to every day? Now, when Paul tells us, and, and here's an interesting question. Is this an outdated command in scripture? Take every thought captive. I would argue we need that now more than ever than before. How can we possibly process all of this information and compete when we're picking up our Bibles once or twice a week on a good week? How can we do that? How do you transform? How do you renovate? How do you reform your mind? How do you do it? It's bringing every thought captive. It's bringing every thought into obedience. And how do we do that? What is the standard? I'm bringing every thought into subjection to God's word. I can't process every thought unless I am regularly in God's word, can I? We need to stop thinking wrongly when we're talking about what it means to be reformed in our minds and start thinking rightly. Well, what does that look like? And, and we know about the bad stuff in terms of data. There's no shortage of it. I'm not even talking about the bad stuff which can entrap many, many believers and the dangers there. But every way that this world is chasing and pursuing your mind to catechize it, how do we think rightly? Really, the question should be, how do I think like a Christian? Philippians 4, 8 through 9, Finally, brothers, whatsoever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. The word think, logeste in the Greek, reckon, reason, conclude, suppose, decide. It's, it's telling us to engage our minds deliberately. It is a battle in which we are to deliberately engage. And how do we do that? We're to set our minds on things above. You say, well, how do I know what's true, what's honorable, what's just, what's pure, what's lovely, what's commendable? Well, there's a standard. The standard is personified, however, in Christ. If our minds are focused on Christ and we are preaching to ourselves the gospel daily, we can fulfill this command to be renewed in our minds. We can be renovated in our minds. We can be reformed. But when we ignore God's word, we'll end up being shaped to fit like everybody else. We'll look just like everybody else. This message is eminently practical for us, I hope. Uh, the church in Laodicea was living like the world. They were. Because it was thinking like the world. We can't live like the church if we're thinking like the world. Can't. Can't live like the church if we're thinking like the world. And it requires our minds to be renovated by God's word. We're to think biblically. And if I'm going to think biblically, I have to immerse my mind in the bath of scripture. 
I have to put off the old and put on the new. That is daily spiritual warfare in your life. Pick up your weapons and engage. Sort your laundry. Throw away the old clothes. Don't save them for later so I can put them on because they're comfortable and I want to go back to those. Put on the new ones and put on Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you renew us, that you transform our minds. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would do what only you can do. If there are any here this morning that do not know you, that have not been born again in the spirit of God, we ask that you would do that work. There can be no renewal unless there is first life. We ask that you would do this work. And for the believer that's here or listening today, I ask, Lord, that you would encourage and empower a change of mind that we would commit as a people that we will think the way you want us to think, that we will bring every thought into captivity, that we will do the hard work, that we will pick up the sword of the word of God and engage the enemy. Father, that you would make us wise as serpents and harmless as doves, that we would see the onslaught that is intended for our hearts and minds. We ask for your help with this. We ask that, Lord, you would get glory from our lives as we are submitted and broken before you. We ask these things in your name.